Does public opinion directly influence foreign policy or is there what we would call a confounding variable, which is that both public opinion and foreign policy are themselves influenced by something else? And sometimes when we think of that something else, that can be the media, particular administrations, which then shape uh, public opinion, that can be the historical moment. There can be so many things that confound it. Die Kulturmittler, der IFA-Podcast zu Außenkulturpolitik. Hello and welcome to today's episode of IFA's podcast, Die Kulturmittler, the title of which can roughly be translated as the cultural conciliators. My name's Dan Wesker and today we want to take a look at the situation in the US, of course not without a European perspective. Nobody could have missed it. After last year's elections, Donald Trump had to leave his office in the White House in January and let his successor, Joe Biden, take over. It's been 100 days since then, and a lot has changed, also in the way the US communicates with other countries around the globe. So today we're going to check, what does the new administration mean for transatlantic relations? Can we expect to go back to a reliable relationship after Donald Trump succeeded in burning quite a few bridges in transatlantic dialogue? To find some answers to these questions, I made a call to the US to talk to J.P. Singh, my guest in today's episode. I'm a professor of international commerce and policy at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, which is really in the Washington uh, DC area. I'm also a Richard von Weizsäcker fellow at the Robert Bosch Academy in Berlin. I mostly focus on international political economy sort of questions, but with uh, culture and technology questions within that being quite prominent. So that would be a short introduction to uh, what I do. And for two years, 2016 to 2018, I was the director for the Institute for International Cultural Relations at the University of Edinburgh. And that may be something that the European listeners might like to hear. By the way, At the University of Edinburgh, J.P. Singh worked on a study on soft power, together with Stuart MacDonald, who we talked to in episode 23 of this podcast about the consequences of Brexit for cultural relations. But back to the transatlantic relations. The Federal Foreign Office of Germany states that alongside European integration, the transatlantic partnership is the most important pillar of German foreign policy. However, this partnership suffered a great deal under President Trump. During his administration, the US had not only withdrawn from important international deals like the Paris Climate Agreement or the World Health Organization, but also transatlantic relations were significantly weakened on many levels. As the foreign policy expert Stephen Blockmans put it, the EU-US alliance as we have known it is dead. Considering this scenario as the starting point for Joe Biden's administration, I asked J.P. Singh if we need to rethink transatlantic relations completely. I think one way of putting it is that if the US-EU alliance as we've known it is dead, then perhaps, although it sounds a little morbid, uh, then the dead are back. And, and that's... Uh, in a, in a more cheerful way is what President Biden said at the Munich Security Conference. America is back, he said. Uh, 
back to what? I don't think we are back to the way US and Europe was in the immediate post-war era. Uh, we're yeah. definitely not back to where we were last year, where European Union was the foe for the Trump administration. Uh, so what would being back then mean and what, what would it mean to rethink transatlantic relations? I don't think they have to be rethought completely because the term America is back means that some of the old is coming back. So when you look at uh, the Biden administration's foreign policy team and the cheers from the other side of the Atlantic for that team, what they recognized was a recommitment to the transatlantic relationship. Uh, what they uh, recognized was that Biden is more likely to be more pro-Europe from the stance that the previous administration had taken, which was really in some ways anti-Europe. But at the same time, we must recognize that interests are uh, sometimes not the same thing as a relationship. So I may have a very good relationship with my neighbor next door, but my interest is to go to the grocery store. That doesn't mean that I'm necessarily spiting my neighbor for by not taking his or her groceries. So I think in the same way, uh, U.S. and European interests may not always be the same. What we will see in America is being back is that uh, working together towards common interests is really where a lot of the rethinking will take place. And we're already seeing instances of that in, in terms of global uh, tax treaty through the OECD or working together on uh, policy from the Western world, so as to say, towards uh, China, uh, or uh, sort of broadly in terms of thinking of uh, what has been called an alliance of democracies or kind of the global liberal order as it was in the past, shaped mostly from, from the Western world. Yeah, we can see earlier in the year, in, in March, Joe Biden attended the European Council summit, which is quite a big deal since the last time an American president met with all EU leaders was 11 years ago. Is that a, a sign of, of this real reapproachment or, or is it just symbolic politics? I think it's both. It is definitely a sign of that rapprochement. Um, Biden is the symbolic part of it, which is important and real, is that he attended uh, the European Council meeting. He's giving a signal to Europe that he's more pro EU, I would say, uh, than he has towards uh, UK with Boris Johnson. Yes, they had a phone call early in January, uh, so it was it was part of that old special relationship that the US has with the UK. That it was important for the incoming US president to contact the UK prime minister. But the signal so far from the uh, Biden administration has been that what you're going to see is, is a renewed commitment towards EU, and we haven't seen something similar. Uh, with respect to the UK. Not that the UK will be ignored in this relationship, but w what seems to be coming out now, and we're still in the first 100 days, is a pro-EU stance. And further along the road, what are your, your hopes for the transatlantic relations under Joe Biden? 
Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, is a Francophile, speaks French fluently, has family in France. The person who may be the Assistant Secretary of State for uh, Europe is Karen Donfried. She is a president of the German Marshall Fund, speaks fluent German fluently. So it, at some level, you know, if you look at the tea leaves, what the Biden administration is indicating is the importance of France and Germany to American uh, foreign policy, which would mean that whatever emerges would come out of uh, sort of this coordination among these three powers, so as to say, not that the others would get ignored, but that at least is indicative of the way that this foreign policy might uh, shape up. What I would expect would be some kind of a stance vis-a-vis China, and that's where I think Germany will need to, if I may say so, step up a bit in terms of where they want to take it with China. Germany has had a very close commercial relationship with China, but lately they've also realized that they share some of the concerns with respect to uh, dispute settlement, with respect to intellectual property issues, with respect to regulations in China that that are closer to that of the US. So Germany could uh, coordinate uh, with, with the United States, but the difficulty is that Germany has not done so to a great deal in the past. Uh, Germany sees its commercial diplomacy and its commercial interests as being dominant in its foreign policy, and they have not always been willing at some level uh, to coordinate that with with the United States. So what you heard at the Munich summit was uh, guarded statements from Angela Merkel and others that, yes, they will coordinate with uh, with the United States, uh, but it's not quite clear what that coordination would be. A related issue is that of human rights, and Germany has been in the past quite hesitant to critique human rights in, in China. So we'll have to see if if this sort of meeting of interests can overcome some of the challenges that have existed in the past. However, on the other hand, one can say that there's definitely a momentum uh, building up to for uh, sort of this transatlantic alliance to coordinate its commercial and political diplomacy vis-a-vis China. And so that's that's one concrete uh, outcome that I can see uh, might uh, come out of it. The second one might just be sort of the strengthening of the European Union uh, with United States making pro-EU statements, which is not what we were hearing in the last four years through the Trump administration. And that's important because a lot of the business of Europe and U.S. takes place through uh, multilateral institutions. So I mentioned earlier that the, the tax accord, for example, that's coming out of the OECD in Paris is important because it would really come out if the EU states and the US uh, cooperate on this. And although it, it may seem like a very obscure topic, but to have come up with this bold plan for a tax treaty in the first 100 days and sort of invest that in the OECD is a very important measure. So we might see a lot of coordination there. And finally, I would say that multilateralism in general is where we can expect 
US and EU to cooperate a lot. So even at the Munich uh, conference summit that you mentioned, Europeans were applauding US plans to rejoin the Paris Climate Change Agreement, which the Biden administration did, and also uh, the World Health Organization. And, and the US did not hold back on the appointment for the new director general of the World Trade Organization. So there are lots and lots of things that have already happened, which point to the fact that you will see uh, strengthening of this multilateral order. We'll just come back to China again. Uh, under President Trump, relations with China also hit a low. And uh, shortly before Joe Biden was elected, Germany's foreign minister, Heiko Maas, stated that the future of transatlantic relations will also be decided by the right way to deal with China. Now, we've spoken a little bit how they could deal with it. How should the EU and the US shape the relationship with China in the future, also on a cultural level? Right, and that's always sort of a difficult question to answer because you can answer it at various levels and yet all the parts are connected. And what I mean by the various levels are the ones that you mentioned. There's an economic trading investment relationship uh, and that may be where uh, the interests diverge uh, at some level the most and that's what I hinted at before. Then there is this issue of uh, China as a rising great power and then thirdly there's this issue of culture, as you mentioned, does China share the same vision of the world that uh, the Western world might or, or other countries uh, might? So let me address it at all of these, these three levels, keeping in mind that the three are connected. Uh, what is beginning to emerge from China's participation in global trading is that, uh, yes, Germany and the United States will continue to trade with China, but China must go along and respect world trade rules. China's concern might be that uh, US and Europe in the past have shaped those trade rules and have defected from those trade rules uh, when it when they didn't, didn't want to, or that they carved them in their favor. And China knows that uh, developing world's concerns with the global trading order has been that they were often left out and told what to do. And China sees itself as an emerging power coming out of the developing world. However, the developing world may not share those interests with China. So in other words, if the US and European Union were to come together in uh, putting pressure on China, you could construct a multilateral alliance, which puts pressure on the country to abide by global trade rules. What do we mean by those? That that if you're part of a market economy, that, that you undertake tariff-cutting exercises, that you do not distort trade through uh, local measures, uh, things like giving heavy subsidies to agriculture or to fisheries or to coal mines or to manufacturing, or and that intellectual property concerns are respected, and that uh, there's a fair dispute settlement mechanism in case the disputes arise. One of the concerns that the incoming National Security Advisor in December uh, had with the European Union's new investment treaty with China was that uh, they should have waited perhaps uh, before signing the treaty. And one very real concern was that there is no real dispute settlement built into that treaty in that European Union hastened to sign the treaty without really uh, pressuring China harder. Now, uh, European Union was negotiating that treaty when Trump did not want to join an alliance. So one can imagine uh, why the European Union sort of decided to go it alone 
alone, uh, but now there's an opportunity to work together. Then there's this issue of China as a rising power. I think that Washington is far more concerned with China as a rising power than perhaps uh, Brussels or Berlin slash Bonn or Paris are. Uh, not that they don't see it, uh, but great power rivalries are among great powers, and that's US and China in this particular case foremost, and then perhaps the European Union. And depending on who you ask, uh, whether we should be containing a rising China because it's going to be a militarist China versus should we be containing a rising China because China might shape the global order uh, is a very broad question to, to try to answer. Personally, I think we should be concerned more with specific things rather than worrying about China as, as a great power because that kind of grand strategy that international relations talks about is, is very hard to diffuse in practice, uh, especially when you have people on the other side who may not join that kind of a strong alliance that may be needed. Finally, there's the cultural question. And here again, it's hard uh, because culturally one might say that Europe and U.S. have more of a shared history than, say, U.S. and East Asia do. But when you uh, stop to think for a while, uh, U.S. interests right now are foremost in East Asia if China is the big question even for the German foreign minister. So in other words, shared past may not mean much for uh, in terms of where the interests are going. And second, there's a recognition now in the United States as well as in Europe that that shared past uh, has been a very white European past and the US no longer shares that. And no, neither does Europe at some level. So some of the fissures within US and Europe have to do with what does that sharing mean and who has been left out of that, that sharing. The United States trade representative is Catherine Tai, a Chinese-American. And so I think that's an equally important uh, appointment from the Biden administration as with uh, the Tony Blinken appointment or the Karen Donfried uh, appointment. So culturally, while there is a shared past in quotation marks, uh, whether that sharing has left out others and what that sharing might mean in the future is still to be shaped. The years of the Trump administration did not only strain transatlantic political relations. During this time, European public opinion towards the US shifted as well. In January, the European Council on Foreign Relations published a study on the topic. It clearly showed that most Europeans were happy with Biden as the new president of the US. But big majorities in several member states of the EU had lost trust in the US system altogether. In Germany, more than 70% of the respondents considered the US system in being between somewhat broken and completely broken. But will these numbers have an impact on the future of the dialogue between the EU and the US? How strongly can the public opinion affect transatlantic relations? I asked J.P. Singh for his assessment. You're talking to a scholar, so this is one of those <laughs> quantitative questions in my head. Does public opinion directly influence foreign policy or is there what we would call a confounding variable, which is that both public opinion and foreign policy are themselves influenced by something else? 
and sometimes when you think of that something else that can be the media, particular administrations which then shape uh, public opinion, that can be the historical moment. There can be so many things that confound it. That said, I'm try not trying to avoid uh, that question, but I, what I would like to say is that uh, you know, I'd like to see the surveys coming in this year and next year and see if there's a rebound in that relationship. I'd also point out that Americans also, while they many of them will hail their European heritage, 40% of Americans at some level uh, may trace their origins back to Germany, for example, they also have suspicions about what Europe is about. It's the old world. It's the world that fights a lot. So in some ways, uh, that's where their mistrust comes from in Europe, that Europe is more likely uh, to be very selfish in its interests. Uh, and Americans like to see themselves as sort of the city on the hill, which does good things for the world. And that's where the Europeans sort of laugh at Americans at an everyday level and say, you know, you, you're sort of fooling yourselves. So there's that part of it. But I think that at a very concrete level, leaders do have their ears to the ground in terms of what public opinion uh, seems to be uh, saying. And uh, while there's this mutual mistrust on both sides of the Atlantic, there's also a great trust in uh, globalization, however much that so may sound so paradoxical, because there are definitely quarters in Europe and United States right now, which uh, uh, do not believe in, in globalization. Usually those are either the far, far left or the far right. And in, in the U.S. case, uh, people have said the far right now includes a majority of the, of the Republican Party. And so there is that sort of distancing oneself from globalization. But uh, by and large, most of the polls show that Americans support uh, economic globalization they support trade, they support building of multilateral institutions. And I think that is very important to the way public opinion will shape this transatlantic uh, foreign policy coordination, because the leaders are going to look for where people are agreed and, and, and shape common endeavors out of that. Uh, so the mutual suspicions across the Atlantic, yes, they exist. I think they will change. But I would also argue that there's also a mutual regard for globalization processes from which I think that the leaders will try to uh, shape common foreign policies. Okay, well, we'll continue with that because the European Commission proposed a, a new transatlantic agenda for global change where the EU and the US will be cooperating on practically everything, such as fighting cybercrime, tackling ecological issues, dealing with trade and security topics. The word culture is not mentioned in this agenda. Are cultural relations falling behind? I think cultural relations have always fallen behind, but I would also add they're also right there up front without being recognised as such. But let me speak to both and the latter first. Foreign policies are shaped through an understanding of interests. One has to question where do interests come from? And, and one ready answer might be that they come from shared values. And values are always situated in uh, the sociology of our times, in, in our cultural pasts, in our histories. 
and that's where culture is always up front. Uh, so while I might uh, say, well, my interest is that as prices fall, I will go out and buy more of a product, yet I'm culturally shaped to see those prices and I'm culturally shaped to go to grocery store A versus B and, and the kinds of things that I pick off of the shelves of that grocery store. So in other words, this laundry list of things that European Union has put forth at some level uh, will need to be and is situated already in a cultural past and a cultural present and a future. It's hard to see that. Uh, because culture, culture is such a slippery term. Culture is about groupness. Culture implies that who's in the group means that somebody's been left out of the group. And the moment you start articulating those types of cultural axioms, uh, it may actually lead to uh, friction in, in sort of international negotiations and interactions. So it's left out. Uh, but sometimes it's deeply understood that it's there. Then there is sort of the small C of cultural relations which has to do with if culture is, for example, the third pillar of EU's uh, foreign policy, and in Germany too, culture is explicitly named as the third part of uh, German foreign policy after economic security, th those two things. And uh, one wonders why the Europeans left it out of that agenda. Well, one could be because they know that when they're talking to Washington, uh, culture doesn't have any resonance. Unlike the European Union, we don't have uh, national cultural institutes. So there's no Institut Francais or uh, British Council or Goethe or IFA counterpart in, in the United States. So that could be one reason that it was left out. Uh, we don't have a cultural ministry in Washington. So that could be another reason that it was, it was left out. However, that doesn't mean that those questions that cultural ministries in Europe or cultural institutions in Europe address are not present in the United States. They are. And, and so at that level of issues, those cultural questions will come up. Those issues may be things like coordinating broadcasting, coordinating television flows. Uh, films is a huge uh, issue of dispute between the European Union and, and the United States. Also social media, uh, exchange of content over social media, how they have to be regulated. So embedded in those technology type issues may be what we're calling platform economies right now. This huge ownerships of uh, infrastructures in the internet age uh, through which all sorts of cultural exchanges, cultural content is being be, being passed from one place to another or one individual to another and, and we still don't quite know how to regulate uh, those those platform economies and, and the various levels at which they have to be coordinated. Uh, so I would say that culture is very much present in those even if it's not explicitly named and that it might be a strategic maneuver on the part of the European Union to not mention culture explicitly, but let it be understood. J.P. Singh already raised the question earlier in our conversation about re-establishing relationships and going back to how things were pre-Trump era. Back to what? Were transatlantic relations sufficient the way they were before Trump? A group of millennials says no. They call themselves progressive Atlanticists, and wrote an open letter with lots of ideas to establish new standards in transatlantic relations. One important point they make out is the need to break the transatlantic so white cycle. The authors claim 
that US European power centers lack representation from the constituencies they seek to serve. In other words, the way transatlantic politics work does not match the way communities look today. That's why transatlantic politics fail to include diverse opinions and perspectives. So I asked JP Singh, are transatlantic relations facing a problem here? I agree, and I would even add overwhelmingly so. Uh, my last book was called Sweet Talk, and it was on racism and paternalism from the global north towards the global south. Uh, I was quite pleased that I was asked to be on this podcast. Usually when you hear of a podcast about U.S.-European relations uh, or uh, you switch on your television screen and they're talking about Europe, you see some white person uh, who is going to be speaking to those relations. And I think, as we would say in America, the chickens have come home to roost. What you're finding in Europe as well as United States is that they are multiracial democracies. Now, and that have led to huge fissures in domestic politics. And the reason that they're going to have to move beyond that transatlantic relation so white is because within those Atlantics, uh, the, these multilateral democracies which are trying to figure out how to move forward. And that's where this is as much a question for transatlantic relations as it is for within North America or within Europe or other places. No, so the recent uh, debate in, in Berlin over the Humboldt Forum is indicative of that. It was merely a museum which was going to uh, foster debates on uh, post-colonialism and be very sensitive towards display of art objects that Berlin museums already have in their collections. What became of the Humboldt Forum at a controversial level was that Germany has no idea on what to do with those art objects or how they were acquired and what is to be done with them. And I think it's a really useful debate to have. And so uh, there is no icing on the cake anymore. Everyone can see the ingredients and how it was manufactured. And the way that cake was manufactured was through leaving out lots and lots of questions. So the current German politics, the immediate uh, springstone for them was Angela Mer Merkel's policy to let the refugees in, and Germany fell apart over that. One has to question why. Why did it fall apart so badly? What was happening that the entire political edifice came undone and far-right parties in, in Germany were able to profit from that? Well, there can be many factors, but the one that's very important is that German politics has been very white at all sorts of levels, whether you look at the Bundestag, you look at who are the CEOs of corporations, you look at who are being represented, who is inside the system. So they're going to have to come to terms with that. This is not a multiracial democracy that was foisted upon Europe. Europe called for it. It lies in the colonial past. Unless both Europe and the United States come to terms with the fact that they are already in a multiracial moment and that multiracial moment has been built on past exclusions and colonialisms, we will not be able to move forward. Absolutely. I mean, there is the protest against it and, and, and you've mentioned it earlier in, in something else you wrote. And that is it in terms of a global protest culture and the international solidarity for the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, you talked about an evolving global civil society. Where else, apart from the BLM protests, is this global civil society emerging and playing a role? I think it emerged in the support that 
President Biden received at the 2020 elections. And it'll be interesting to see what happens with, with the German elections in September, October, and what happens with the French elections. It'll be interesting to see what happens with the Scotland question, what happens in the way that we deal with the recent protests and violence in Northern Ireland. What I'm hinting at is that it's there at the domestic level, and it's a civil society that is equally interested in globalization and equally interested in a policy of compromise, of accommodation, of interactions, of learning from each other, which is really what liberalism with the big L means. On the other side is this so white civil society. Whichever way one deals with it, one can say they're, they're the white left behinds, which is, I think, a huge misnomer. They've always been left behind. So what does it mean to say white left behind? To me, it just implies that there are white people who all of a sudden don't feel they belong. And uh, whether they've been left behind to me is, is a question that needs to be answered with respect to who else is left behind and are they more left behind than the others? Uh, so whichever way that might be, that that's where the opposition will come from. What we're seeing at a global level is that this civil society does come together, whether it's for climate change or whether it is for BLM or for human rights issues or it's for gender rights or LGBTQ rights, uh, that this civil society does stand. And the question is how and to what extent will they be able to shape the future of global liberalism or future just global interactions in general? And it goes back to that public opinion question that, that you were asking earlier. Uh, will global leaders respond to this to the extent that they're going to be elected from these civil societies in, in their domestic context and they can see that there are transnational connections and if those leaders stay in power then definitely this civil society will be will be influencing plus there is this um, strength of global civil society in sort of the political economies of disruption and i hope that we have more and more of them the blm protests in this country through the pandemic in in washington and how they spread around the world was really inspiring people took to the streets that's what a social movement means politics is not uh, responsive to what's going on it's not addressing issues and people will take to the streets so a conservative response to that is, how dare they take to the streets? But as a little bit of thinking will tell us, people take to the streets when the political institutions are not answering for them. So whether people get their act in order or not, at the institutional level, the civil society is not going away and it's going to continue to strengthen. And, and I hope that uh, you know, the German and the French elections uh, will elect leaders that come out of the what I would see this as as the positive aspects of this global civil society. Okay, well that leads nicely on to the the last question for that, and that's that you've called the relationship between the US and the EU an alliance of democracies, keeping in mind that the US and the EU are both struggling with their own democratic issues within won't we have to expect this alliance to grow ever more fragile or is there more hope there? I think both at this point, if anybody is asked. Uh, one understands that uh, Biden was 
elected with the smallest of margins at some level in that not that he didn't have a historically high vote, but so did uh, Donald Trump. And the Democrats lost votes in, in Congress and barely skimmed through on the Senate. And, and you seeing, you know, the polls coming out of France, uh, all the polls in France before the elections always tend to go to the extremes until a consensus develops and, and we're nervous about what might happen with the, with the German elections. But they're not the only countries here with populist leaders. You have Hungary, you have India, you have Turkey, you have Brazil. But what we're also seeing is that even with just the election of uh, President Biden in the United States, that you know there, there may be a demonstration effect uh, worldwide for this, uh, if nothing else, but because Biden's administration is not going to have the same type of relationship with Prime Minister Modi or President Bolsonaro uh, that, that the Trump administration, they're not going to openly encourage them. Uh, they're not going to move away. These are big countries. Uh, uh, but on the other hand, they can shape interests. Uh, another country that doesn't have a democracy, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, you're already seeing that uh, MSB from Saudi Arabia is uh, trying his level best uh, to be on good terms with the Biden administration. So the hope would be that the United States, even with the thinnest of margins, having overturned what I would call definitely forces of uh, populism and, and possibly uh, encroaching authoritarianism, that that would be instructive also for the rest of the world. It's too early to tell, but but the fact that Biden's under 100 days in office have been so successful that he's been able to do so many things well uh, might also be instructive for, for other countries. This is where interests uh, matter the most. A voter in Dresden is not going to look at uh, what happened in Chattanooga, Tennessee to vote. Uh, but on the other hand, if that voter's... Uh, worldview is being shaped by what's happening around the world, uh, they may or may not say, yes, what happened in Chattanooga influenced my vote in Dresden. But on the other hand, uh, they may share the same worldview as a voter in Chattanooga. The question is, will that worldview would be the one that uh, a Trump voter shares with somebody in Dresden, uh, which has these Monday evening protests? Or is it one of liberalism, of a multiracial democracy? of a civil society that's thriving. So let's hope it's the latter. Things have started off promisingly for transatlantic relations under the Biden administration, and as J.P. Singh hopes, this change might encourage a dynamic of positive development around the world. At the same time, naturally, transatlantic politics are facing some of the exact same criticism that is also raised within the US and many EU countries. The structure and the staff of transatlantic relations still don't allow for a pluralist community where different voices and their needs are being heard. So going back to the way things work might not be the final solution. Next month in the upcoming episode of Die Kulturmittler, my colleague Lara Lena Goeder will talk to curator Clementine Delis about contemporary art and critical anthropology. For any suggestions, critique and wishes, feel welcome to email us at podcast at My name's Dan Wesker. I hope you can join me the next time. Thanks for listening. 
Kulturmittler. Der IFA-Podcast zu Außenkulturpolitik.